First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. The following show has a lot of explicit content. I'm sure you'll like it because of that. It's Friday, April 27th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Things might sound a little different because I'm talking to you from a hospital emergency room. Uh, it's okay. It is not a matter of life or death. We have since found out. Touch and go there for a second. But um, a family member had a medical emergency. And such is the nature of emergencies that it's really hard to schedule them. So I'm doing this via the voice memo app on my phone. And Pierre and Mary are going to make it sound as good as it can, and so shall I. Now, let's, let's for a second talk about Paul Ryan. We heard that Paul Ryan, maybe his legacy was thwarted, didn't get much done, but who would have thought that of all the things that Paul Ryan did, of all the major strides of Paul Ryan, one would be a major act of separation of church and state, only insofar as he separated the chaplain of the House of Representatives from his cushy state job. Pat Conroy, Jesuit priest, was asked to resign by Speaker, outgoing Speaker Ryan, outgoing, just a technical term, saying he's leaving, seems like kind of a curmudgeon, given that he didn't like what the priest was saying in some of his invocations. He gave a prayer or two. Let me quote from the offensive words that this Jesuit priest said that didn't jibe with uh, the Catholic from Jane's Way, Paul Ryan. The very reverend, the ex-very reverend Pat Conroy said, quote, as legislation on taxes continues to be debated this week and next, may all members be mindful that the institutions and structures of our great nation guarantee the opportunity that have allowed some to achieve great success while others continue to struggle May their efforts these days guarantee that there are not winners and losers under new tax law, but benefits balanced and shared by all Americans. All Americans, opportunities. I mean, this does sound quasi-Marxist. In fact, if nothing else, it reminds me of these words. I accept the calling to give our children the America that was given to us with the opportunity for the young and security for the old. And who said those words? Well, that was Paul Ryan. That was the 2012 Republican National Convention. See, I think here's the deal. Paul Ryan said those words in an effort to uh, maybe confuse you about the fact that what he really wanted to do was give a tax break to people who are pretty wealthy. When the Jesuit priest, Reverend Conroy, read those words, it was because he meant them. And when you mean those words as something other than in the service of a big tax break, that can get offensive to the guy who's engineering the big tax break. If you don't believe me, just read this resignation letter 
No one is exactly sure why Pat Conroy resigned, but the resignation does start with, at your request, at the request of Paul Ryan, so we know where it came from. And let us also note that the date of that resignation letter over statements of taxes was April 15th. Now, on the show today, I will not be doing a spiel because, as I said, I am in the hospital. And really, if I were to do a spiel, you know how my process works. I spiel about the things that are occurring to me today and just a lot of hospital things are occurring. Like, I was thinking of this. You know how with animals, you have cats and cats are a type of pet? So, of course, by definition, there are going to be more pets in the world than cats in the world because cats are only one type of pet. But in hospitals, you have cat scans and pet scans, but there are many, many more cat scans than there are pet scans. It's not the case that cat is a type of pet, just the commonality. And, you know, this got me to thinking about anteaters because a stuffed anteater figures in a major photography scandal or as major a scandal as comes in the world of anteater photography. A wildlife photo competition disqualified a winner because apparently the anteater in question in this, this candid photo of an anteater was done with a stuffed anteater. Ah, the stuffed anteater rearing its besnooted head once more. The wildlife photographer of the year, here is the quote from the Museum of Natural History, is with great sadness, we're letting you know that after a careful investigation using possibly anteater forensic experts into the image, the night raider, we have disqualified the photograph. It was the winner of the 2017 animals in their environment category. Let me just say a couple things. Have you seen the Museum of Natural History? The thing is all stuffed animals. It's a menagerie, a very plush menagerie, the fever dream of Teddy Roosevelt. See that beautiful ram over there? Stuff it. See that giraffe we came across in Africa? Stuff it. Teddy Roosevelt. What did he give his name to? A teddy bear, a stuffed bear. So I don't see how a stuffed animal would be not in keeping with what the Museum of Natural History has been going for all these years. Also, think of the ants. One stuffed anteater, as opposed to a live anteater, could mean 20, 30, I don't know, 400,000 more living ants. So if you really cared about nature, maybe you'd embrace the stuffed anteater. So I say this all in the service of explaining that I'm not doing a spiel because these are the things on my mind. You don't need that. What you do need is my interview. It's by a journalist who has a new podcast out called Caliphate. Her name is Rukmini Kalamaki. That is an excellent podcast. I commend you to. Her reporting methods are really interesting. We talk right now about ISIS and the sorry state of that erstwhile caliphate. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity, using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. 
Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. The idea of the caliphate has been frequently floated by the most radical of Sunni terrorists. It harkens back to the 14th centuries that there was one ruler for all the Islamic world. Some cite the Ottoman Empire as a caliphate died out in 1924, but really groups like ISIS are looking for a 7th, 7th century idea of legal rule. And this is where we have the radicalizing call of the rebel butting up against the drudgery of the technocrat. Yes, throwing off the shackles of the oppressor, especially if they are infidel, sounds great, but then you have to provide reliable electricity or even a water filtration plant. Rukmini Kalamaki has infiltrated ISIS, and she not only has the threats and the PTSD to show. She has the receipts and the bills of lading. Her new podcast is called Caliphate. Hello, Rukmini. How are you? <laughs> Hi, Mike. Nice to see you. And if I could just correct one thing, I don't think I have PTSD, thank God. Okay. Um, but the caliphate is also the concept of a caliphate. It's something that is also shared by, by moderate Muslims. And that's why, in part, it's so disturbing when a group like ISIS goes and runs with it. What century do, do moderate Muslims want to go back to? Well, the first caliphate that was founded was founded by the Prophet Muhammad and his successors. So that is when this notion of basically a theocracy that is run according to Islamic law begins. The last one in the modern era that was that was acknowledged by people other than those living in it was the Ottoman Empire. And ISIS is the most recent one as a jihadist group to try to actually make it real again. That's where you get into this theater that they do of trying to recreate what they thought life was like in the 7th century, down to the way men they believed wore their pants back then, down to the facial hair that men should have, down to the type of dress that women should wear. And, now, and why theater? Why not genuine belief? Look, this is where I I think I depart with some people. Um, I have spent enough time looking at them to, to to believe that there is that there is genuine belief here. I'm looking at their internal correspondence. I'm looking at the diaries uh, that their fighters kept. Rukmini, can you describe what you're doing? Well, we're in a in a room off the side of a church that ISIS had used as a base. I'm looking at a notebook here. You often can find the documents that they left behind. Look at this one. It's a little diary. It's like day by day. These are not documents that are meant for publication. So look, this is where they slept. This is a prayer mat. And then over there, these are the rockets that they they manufactured. Yeah. And they were obsessed with things like uh, uh, observing prayer times, making sure that people on Friday uh, closed their shops and went to the mosque, making sure that during Ramadan, nobody cheated and nobody was eating uh, during the fast. And so when you see those kind of things, it's hard to turn away from the idea that that there was a genuine belief. Right. So when I was uh, studying Afghanistan and the problems with the Taliban, it was always pointed out to me that the Taliban were full of religious fervor and uh, would go after someone. The kite flying was their thing, maybe not right, pa- right. cuff length. But they just yeah. weren't good at providing uh, the, a functioning electrical grid. Mm-hmm. I always had the idea that maybe these two things didn't go together, that the, mm-hmm. uh, that, that the function, the day in, day out of being, being an insurrectionist mm-hmm. was fairly incompatible with the day in day out of, uh, you know, being a postal carrier. Do you, do you see that? 
That's that's an interesting observation. Um, what what I remember from from my time, um, which was very brief uh, in Afghanistan, is that people initially praised the Taliban for bringing security to the areas that they were living in. Um, that initially you had this kind of free for all with with various rebel leaders and and banditry, and that at least they brought security. And um, ISIS and Al Qaeda uh, have taken this to sort of new heights in all of the areas uh, where they have attempted to run a proto state, and by that I mean in Yemen, uh, in Mali, and then and then most recently in Iraq and Syria. The first thing that they do is that they are credited with bringing back security. And what is surprising about ISIS and Al Qaeda before it is that they have by now been experimenting with this idea for quite some time. Keep in mind, ISIS is an outgrowth of the group called Al Qaeda in Iraq. They first declared a state uh, over a decade ago, and so they've been practicing and practicing and practicing at governing, and they have managed to get a couple of things right. It's not, it's, it's, it's obviously not even close to enough to make people actually like them. Mm -hmm. But they've managed to get a couple of things right that the, that, for example, the state of Iraq was not able to get right, such as garbage collection. And if you live in a place like Mosul, where right now, garbage is just being dumped everywhere, that becomes something noticeable when a group comes in and is able to, is able to rectify that. You do give them credit for that. Is this something in the internal correspondence? And we should note that you go to sites where ISIS was, you yeah. throw a lot of, uh, you throw whatever detritus into garbage bags, but it's not detritus, it's receipts, it's internal communications. Yeah. You figure out the mundane tasks of of how they operated. Mm-hmm. Um, is this something that they were concentrating on because they knew in order to be a functioning state going forward for years, they'd have to get this right? Was that there? Was there a lot of talk about guys, we maybe garbage collection isn't the sexiest thing. Maybe killing the right. infidels is. They wouldn't say sexy. But, you know, we really need right. to nail this one. Uh, you see this not in documents that I found, but in the documents that, in, in one specific document that uh, researcher Ayman Tamimi found in Syria. It's basically a white paper that was issued um, right around uh, that ISIS uh, goes to take Mosul, which is in in the summer of 2014. And it's a white paper on governance, which lays out the various ways in which ISIS was hoping to govern the area. And it discusses these types of issues uh, there. And one of the recommendations of that white paper is that when you come into a new area, you should not get rid of the civil administration that was already in place. Yeah. And that that doesn't sound like much, but if you consider the fact that in 2003, when the U.S.-led invasion occurred, one of the first things, uh, one of the first decrees that was pa- passed by the by the provisional authority was the decree uh, called the debathification that got rid of the Bath Party. And the way they got rid of it was by essentially firing everyone who was a mid-level manager and above. That sounded like a good idea at the time. It, it was a way to get rid of the of the government of, of Saddam Hussein. But what they actually did is they gutted the civil administration of Iraq. They gutted the public service ranks. And that created, in a way, the vacuum that groups like ISIS later rushed to fill. It seemed like a good idea to Jerry Bremer, but at the time, soon after, at the time, a lot of people said, well, that was the number one stumble. And from there, if you're, I mean, maybe the invasion itself was the stumble, but from there, that is where things went bad. And there's a huge irony to this, as you know, which is that the Ba'ath Party and former Ba'ath Party generals linked up with ISIS. So not only did they learn from the mistake 
mistakes of their predecessor. They actually uh, weaponized them. But I have a question about this. I always thought that the Ba'ath Party was the least religious. And I suppose if you wanted to rise under Saddam Hussein, you could be religious on the side, but, Mm. you know, publicly not have to adhere to that. How do these Ba'ath Party generals, who are supposed to be irreligious, join up with the most, their version of religion or the most radical um, Islamists in ISIS? I don't have a good answer for that. I mean, what, what, what is clear is that once you join ISIS, then at least the veneer of religiosity takes over everything. Um, there's no such thing as a secular member of ISIS, right? But you're mm-hmm. absolutely right. What they did is they were very clever, and they reached out to people who had real competence. Um, members of the Ba'ath Party before who had who had been thrown to the curb. Uh, but not just that. I mean, they recruited service members from America. There's been several that have been arrested. Uh, they recruited members of the Russian and the Chechen armies. That was the bulk of their fighting force. It was these Russian-trained soldiers who came with all of the expertise of having weathered the various wars in the former Soviet Union. And so they, they did this from a lot of different areas, and they created essentially a core of competent people to try to to lead their government. Hmm. Did their radicalism help them as insurgents? It helped in the sense that these grotesque acts of of savagery that they that they committed, from the burning of these of the Jordanian pilot to the beheading of aid workers and journalists, what it does is it really strikes fear in their enemies. That was part of their strategy. And you see it when you're on the ground. I mean, I was with the Iraqi military as they were as they were pushing in, and people are afraid of them. You know, I mean, they're, they're afraid of them, not just because they have weapons, but because, God forbid, you fall into their hands, you know that, that your fate is going to be something really, really horrific. Right. Um, and I think that they were able to weaponize that fear. I think that part of the reason that, that the security forces in Mosul collapsed the way they did is they had been carrying out a campaign of intimidation for really weeks before, where people were, you know, people were being picked up and killed uh, for weeks before before Mosul actually fell, so that without, like, a clear direction and clear directive from higher-ups, all that happened is that the troops just buckled and ran. And how much, so how much of their decline do you think can be pegged to their radicalism, though? That's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I think that all of these groups, um, ISIS, al-Qaeda, uh, they, they start out in a place where they have more support than we would like to admit. Um, there was support from them in Mosul when they came in. I've, I've interviewed people in Western Mosul who, who described people who came out to ge- greet them. I saw the same thing in Mali when they took over Timbuktu. But Soon after, um, they come in, they bring security, they start doing their services, people like that. But soon after that, uh, you start having these atrocities, which just turn people's stomachs. Um, in a little town north of Mosul, it was the stoning to death of, of a couple who was accused of adultery. People were really turned off, you know, by that. Uh, in Mosul, it was, of course, you know, the, the killing of accused spies, etc. And um, that level of violence begins to really offend, you know, the the humanity of the people living there. Um, and little by little, uh, or maybe not even little by little, you know, more quickly than, we, than, than they would like, they begin to lose support. So we, we normally measure or have measured the strength of ISIS by the geographic area they control, size of mm-hmm. Belgium, size of the United Kingdom. But now it's right. down to a much smaller size. Is that an accurate way to assess them? And, you know, how potent is ISIS now? So definitely territory is important. And one of the things that I spent a lot of time uh, reporting on is is how they were able to, um, to, to basically just uh, monetize every inch of dirt that was un- under, under their feet. They were making 
making money hand over fist from things like agriculture, um, the the wheat harvest, the barley harvest, which were they, they were taxing. And so the territory, on the one hand, is um, an enormous source of wealth for them. So it's very important to remove the territory in order to cut off their fun- funding. I, I, I think you'll recall that the way that the coalition was trying to uh, impact uh, ISIS finances in the beginning was by targeting their oil wells. Oil right. was never more than 20% of their um, of their of their spreadsheet, according to to the estimates I've seen. Also, uh, people should remember that in 2014, when they declared the caliphate, oil's about $100 a barrel. It plunged to below 50. Now it's at 70. Mm-hmm. So even that, as oil as a revenue source, is dicey. Right. If you imagine, I mean, I I would certainly be hurting if from today to, to next week I lost 20% of my paycheck, but I would still be able to pay most of my expenses, right? Yeah. I would not be able to make ends meet if I lost 50% of my ch- paycheck, which is what which was what we believe taxes and fees uh, amounted to. Um, so, so on the one hand, the territory, it's important to take it away because it is the source of revenue. That said, this is a group that for years and years has been an insurgency, right? So they are just going back now to what they were pre-2014. And pre-2014, they were, they were fierce enough that they were able in just 72 hours to take the city of Mosul. Right. Um, So so I think it's it's very premature to be declaring the end of ISIS. Um, We we, we seem to do this again and again. You know, the mission accomplished. uh, (laughs) Nothing comes to mind recently. Yes. (laughs) Right. One one recent one comes to mind. We, We keep on doing this again and again, where officials wanting to score a political victory, announced that this is over, that this has been defeated, that this has been degraded. Uh, President Obama did it. President Bush did it. President Trump is certainly doing it. And then and then we get sideswiped by whatever the next attack is. And, yeah. then, we, and, the, and then my editors turn to me and say, how could this possibly have happened? <laughs> Write a story about how this could possibly have happened. And, um, and, and we begin again. Rukmini Kalamaki's new podcast is called Caliphate. It is replete with details that we were talking about and also the behind the scenes of how she does her job, why she brings garbage bags on site (laughs) in Syria, and why one day when they were trying to fix the toilets, she got scared out of her mind and you will be too. (laughs) Thank you, Rabini. Anyway, thank you. Thank you so much uh, for having me. Take care now. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre. 20 cc's of Thorazine BNMA. I do not know what 20 cc's of Thorazine will give you. I hope it is something someone once said on a show other than ER. Oh, I don't mean the ER with uh, George Clooney. I mean the sitcom ER. Mary Wilson is the GIST's senior producer. Mary Clear Wilson, that's what we call her, around the office. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast. Now, the Lichtai family has a funny role in hospital history. They were the first family to advocate Jell-O as a constant source of nutrition before the Lichtai's aspic was served, an aspic mold. If you were sick, you got the aspic, and then they said, let's go with Jell-O, cost savings. We passed the savings on to the administrators. The gist the only known podcast that would actually go about halfway towards meeting your deductible. Umpro Depro Dupro, and thanks for listening. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com 
and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD.